Thanks, Joy. Thank you. <clears throat> Special welcome to you if you're broadcasting in today and, and watching the service online. You're always welcome to be with us. We love to connect with people around the city, around the country, and even around the world. Um, we actually have a little bit of uh, sad news to some degree that uh, many of you, if you're online, will always remember Jerry. Jerry, we considered our doorkeeper online. He was um, homebound because of a, a lot of sickness that he had. And um, he would always greet people when they came online and went in the chat room. And uh, you may notice that today, Jerry's not actually online today because he passed away last week. Um, but, you know, as he was a doorkeeper for our church online, he gets to see what it's like to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord because the word says that. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the, in the house of the Lord than to spend my lifetime anywhere else. So Jerry, we, uh, we, we, we celebrate for you for the, um, for the, the promotion that you've had uh, to be with the Father. We're excited for you and hopefully, um, not hopefully, we will, we'll see you there. So I don't know why I'm speaking to the camera like he's, like he's tuning in right now, you know. <laughs> Jerry, whatever, oh, there you go. <clears throat> it's the best I got right there, I tell you. Maybe he is, he's watching, he's got the computer up in heaven right now, it's, that works for me. We're going to continue on work, uh, 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 talking about walking with God. In fact, we're, we're going to extend it into next month too, because it's probably one of the most important topics we could ever talk about, and that is just walking with God, because giving our life to Christ is an important, important factor. Getting saved is an important part, but after we become saved, we have to learn how to walk with God. It's not something that is that easy to express or just do because it's not so much formulaic. It's a relationship. And two weeks ago, I talked about walking with God on the mountain. And today, what I want to do is talk, talk about walking with God in the valley. And of course, when we're talking about walking with God in the valley, and we talk about just valleys. Valleys are very symbolic of difficult times. Probably the most famous scripture in the, in the Bible about a valley is in Psalm 23, 4, where it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Valleys are a significant part of our lives. Lives are made of highs and lows. They're made of successes and failures. They're made of mountains and they're made of valleys. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at what it is to walk with God through a valley. And two weeks ago when I talked about walking with God on the mountain, we uh, looked at Moses walking with God on the mountain. And when we were looking at Moses walking with God on the mountain, we talked about how a mountain is very symbolic of successes or great things that we do, things we have to overcome, things we have to conquer. And usually for a Christian, it's a lot to do with a calling in life because anyone that walks with God on the mountain is called by God to a purpose because we're not just called to walk with God just for the joy of ourselves, but to be useful for the kingdom of God. And so I want to look at Exodus chapter 32, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 20. It'll take um, a, a kind of a long scripture here, but I think it's worth reading through. When Moses, sorry, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, Moses, when he was up on the mountain, he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. They gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. The reason why it says a little A there, because it actually also means singular God and multiple God. 
Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't even know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger might burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? No, turn your face, turn your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. You said, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will make your descendants all this land I promised them. I'll give it to them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would speak to us this morning through the reading of your word in your precious son's name. Amen. When Moses was on top of the mountain, he walked with God and he talked with God and he learned about God and he was all alone up on top of the mountain. We talked about last time where he had to, they had to give off burdens, they had to sacrifice to God, they had to get rid of unnecessary burdens. He even talked about where Abraham said, sorry, Moses said that when you want to go in the presence of God, you cannot come with disputes, take them down the mountain, don't go into the presence of God with disputes. And then he talked about how it was a consuming fire. It was a consuming mountain, meaning that it's a holy mountain, meaning that we have to be holy in order to walk with God on the mountain to do great things. But as soon as he had received the word of God, the revelation of the 10 commandments on top of the mountain, he came down the mountain into the valley. What I find fascinating with this is that when he came into the valley, he came across what I call two problems. What I call two problems. Oh, I never finished this. Look, look, look at this. Okay, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law and then they were describing. Let's read it properly. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. Now it's making sense. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the camp, the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. 
When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it into powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. What an odd story, right? I mean, how many of you are getting up in the morning and meditating on this one? Hey, remember the time when Moses made them eat and drink uh, uh, gold? It's just like, it's not Goldschlager or something. You know, it's like, just, just drink this stuff. It's weird stuff. What an odd, weird story. But as he came down the mountain and into the valley, I see two problems that Moses came across in the valley. The first one is the people problem. And the second one is the seeing problem. Let's look at the first one, the people problem. What I find fascinating with when Moses came down the mountain is that when he came down the mountain, he, he actually knew what he was walking into. He already knew at the top of the mountain, God said, these people are driving me nuts. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And God, you could just see Moses kind of going, all right, now simmer down, God. Let's, let's just take us down a notch. It's not as bad as you think. I'm sure, I'm sure everything will be fine. He already, and God had described what was going on. He already knew what he was walking into. And as he came down the mountain, he sees the people and he goes, son of a gun, takes the thing, smashes them on the ground. And I don't do know that stuff, right? And he pitches a fit himself, right? But he already knew what he was walking into. Sometimes I think we do that as well, especially with the news. We know how crazy the world is. We know how crazy people are. And then we watch the news and go, I can't believe them like that. Or you do it with Facebook and you read what someone's doing. You're like, what an idiot. And you get frustrated, but you already knew it, right? It's the same when we go for Christmas with our families too, right? You get to Christmas and like, my family are nuts. They just drive you nuts. But you already knew it because you grew up with them. Same people. Same people. But when you're going into a valley, I believe that it's not all bad. There is upsides and there's downsides. Here's the upsides that I see. When you have got the upsides, the upsides are what I call sustenance and relationships. Sustenance are in the valley, there are rivers, there are fields, there is commerce, there's shelter. You don't get those things on the mountain. Even if someone takes a house and builds it on top of the mountain, they still have to come down to Walmart in the valley, right? There's no Walmarts up on top of the mountain, the Smoky Mountains, right? It's gorgeous to be up there, but you still have to come down the mountain and get the stuff that you need. All the sustenance that we need are in the valleys. Also, people are there too. Now, you might not say you're a people person, but you still need each other. We still all need each other. We need each other, whether we like it or not. If you like each other or you don't like each other, we still need each other. Even if it's just through commerce, we still have to be connected to each other through family, friends, and community. Now, don't get me wrong. Valleys are difficult too. And I see three specific obstacles or problems when we come into the valley. The first one is friction. Friction is usually with people. You know, have you ever gone to a beautiful landscape? You go on vacation, you go to a beautiful landscape and you get there and there's tons of people already there. And the first thing that goes through your head is this would be gorgeous if it wasn't for all these people, right? Have you ever done that? No, yeah, that's me, I'm too. It's like, it's like 4th of July weekend, you go to the exact same place where everyone else is going Right? And you get there and you're like, you're just distressed. You were trying to get there just to kind of calm down and have a nice time. But there's so many people there. You, you actually leave stressed because there were so many people there. But the fact is, that's part of our life that when we're interacting with people, we have friction with other people. When you're connecting with people, you're eventually going to have friction. You might have hugs time, but you're also going to have punch-up time with people. Have you ever been on a, like a, on a, 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 
uh, like on a road trip, especially when you're young, you're like, like oh, we, 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 can, we can go conquer the world, let's take a road trip together. And then you go on a road trip and halfway through the road trip, you're just starting to fall out of love with all your friends, you can't stand them. Or you decide to share an apartment with someone else, like, it'll be awesome, we'll just be like, we'll just, we're at college together and we'll just have an apartment, we'll have parties all the time, it'll be awesome until you find out they're really messy and you can't stand living with them. That's the friction of being with people. And some of you are thinking, is he describing my spouse right now? But the other one is restriction. When you go into valleys, valleys have steep sides. They have obstacles. They have trees. They have things that are in our ways. And when you're on top of a mountain, you get to the top of a mountain, you can see for miles. You can see the future. You can see the direction that would be the best direction to take. You can see obstacles that would be in your way. You can see storms that are even coming. But when you're in a valley, you don't see the storms as much. You don't see that into the future. You only see what's around you, which then starts to distract you because distractions tend to be events or they tend to be people. And you can often not feel the presence of God. You can't see the great things of God because you feel more the presence of people that are around you. That's the downside of being in a valley. But as much as we would love to try and be free of frictions and restrictions and distractions, the fact is Jesus said that I go to prepare a place for you and in my Father's house, there are many rooms. Listen, we're gonna be roommates whether you like it or not. You're gonna be listening to me. You're gonna be seeing me. Someone's gonna be in the restroom and the bathroom way too long and you can't get in the shower in heaven. You're like, no, no, that will never happen. Let me tell you, we're still who we are when we get to heaven. Yes, we might have Christ amongst us. Yes, we might learn how to operate in grace more, but we're still people, right? This then takes me to the second problem that I see. <laughs> the second problem that I see is the first one was the people problem. But the second one that I believe that Moses came across was what I call the seeing problem. The seeing problem. And the seeing problem <coughs> is where they started to do something where they made a golden calf, as we read. When he came down, Moses discovered that the people had made a golden calf in the valley. Now, when I looked at this, I started asking myself the question, why did they make a golden calf? Because it seems odd. It seems like, well, maybe we have an assumption of how people used to live. I mean, has anyone here ever made an idol for yourself? Have you made a golden calf? Anyone made anything that looks like a god, right? We don't, oh, because we're just too smart. We're way past that. But they made a golden calf. I have to say that I made an assumption about this whole thing, and it was this. I made an assumption that they were actually trying to have a different God. They were trying to get rid of Yahweh, and they decided, well, let's, 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 let's get rid of this God, and we'll get a different God. But when we read it, and then read it in verse 5, I discovered they weren't trying to get a different God. When Aaron saw the golden calf, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced Tomorrow there will be a festival to the, what does it say? To the Lord. That word there is Yahweh or Jehovah. They hadn't broken the first command. They had broken the second command. They had something. They wanted to have something in their life that was a representation of God. Why did they make this golden calf? Because of this. They wanted it to be visible and movable. They wanted God to be visible and they wanted God to be movable. Visible, why would he make them visible? Why would they want God to be visible? It seems like 
that doesn't seem such a bad thing when, they, when, when we say, hey, we, God, I want to see you. I want to be able to, to see the things that you do. That doesn't seem such a bad thing. But why would they make God visible? I believe it's because it helps to define who he is. It's so that we can clearly see the things of God. We can define who God is. Last year, I had to go to the optician, which I've not really done before, because I was having trouble watching my nerdy foreign movies with subtitles, right? And so when you're sitting on the couch and you're watching it, you put the subtitles on and you start doing this, that's when you know you're getting a little blind, right? Who wears spectacles? Who wears glasses here? You wear them? Right, so I went to the optician and I went to get my eyesight checked. You know when, they, when, they, when you go there and then they put, they put these things in front of your eyes and they go, one or two? One or two? One or two? And you're sitting there going, I don't know the difference. I can't. <laughs> Could you give me a coin so I can flip it and make a decision here? Because one or two? One. Okay, one. Okay. And then they go, okay, one or two? One or two? And then you're like, oh, for sure, number two. Absolutely. Okay, one or two? One or two? And they go through this whole process. And then what they do is they go, okay, can you read the, the, the what's it they call the, the eye chart thing? What's that called? Eye chart thing. Okay. <laughs> That's what you call it too? I call it as well. It's like the official name, the eye chart thing. And they have this big eye chart, right? And you're sitting there and they're like, okay, if you could just start reading the chart. And what I love is they put one massive letter at the top. I think it's just to kind of give you confidence. You're sitting there going like, A, right? And then you just like, shake it off. I can do this. I can do this. I got this. Yep, okay, A. And then you do the next line. And then you got the next line. You go the next line. And then you get this, this line where you start doing this. I think it's, no, no just, just stop there for a second. When you think about it, you're there in order to identify what you can't do, right? And instead of just admitting, I can't read that line, I know what I did. I started kind of like squinting, like I think that's an H and an F and a P and a five. And you, you can imagine they're just going, oh no, your problem, Peter, is you don't need spectacles. You obviously just need to squint, right? <laughs> Squinting is what I really need in my life. I'm just sitting there squinting. I'm like, what am I squinting for? I should just go, I can't read that line, right? And then just move on to the next step of getting spectacles. Now, when I got spectacles, I remember putting them on going, that is amazing. I can read the copyright line on the bottom of that eye chart thing, right? And I'm like, this is amazing. So. So, so I, got, I got it back to my office and I put my spectacles on and I looked at the screen and I'm like, I can see pixels. That's how amazing it was. And this is what happens when you get spectacles. When you get, when you get the ability to be able to see things, you feel more in control of stuff. You feel like you can interact with it. You feel like you can connect it. It feels like everything comes alive. If we see God, we can measure Him. We can quantify. We can decide where He is and where He's not. We can decide if this is good or this is bad. We can prove Him. It makes us feel in control. We feel safe to the point where we even come up with phrases like, seeing is believing. But the fact is, seeing is not believing because if you see, you don't need to believe. You already know what is there. So there is no demand or expectation on our faith because we already see it. I do this and I've heard it many times when you're going through a difficult time, people will say, where were you God? They're basically saying, I didn't see you around. I didn't, I didn't see you move. 
I didn't see what you were doing in this situation. Why is it that horrific things have happened in our city? Why is it horrific things have happened in my life? Why is that person doing this? God, where were you? To some degree, it's like an accusation. I remember not so long ago where I even kind of said this to God where <clears throat> I was going through a difficult time and I told God, and I'm like, you know, I just, God, I just want to see you. I just, I just want, I need to know your presence. I need to see your presence. And I just had this small voice in my, in my heart that said, this is it. See, what I was really asking was, get rid of the frictions. Get rid of this people problem that I've got. Get rid of the distractions. Get rid of the discomfort that I've got. Get rid of all this stuff. But God doesn't work that way. Even Israel, when they saw that Moses hadn't come back, they felt a a lack of safety. They didn't know what to do because they were so used to Moses telling them what to do. Like, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Wait, you know what we should do? We should identify God. We should manifest Him. We should make something that we can actually see. But when we can't see God, we tend to replace Him with other things. What do we replace them with? Well, this is what they did. They made a calf and then they had a festival and then they had an orgy. Now in your scripture, it probably says they, they, had, they, they got up for revelry or it says the word play. They started to play, which basically means that they got up for an orgy. Now there's only one other time in the Bible where it talks about that. They use the exact same word and they actually talks about the, uh, the, 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 the person got up for the play of harlotry. Now, I'm not about to say that if you're trying to manifest God by what you physically see in your life, that tomorrow you're about to go have an affair or everything, you're about to go sleep around. I'm just telling you that this is the pattern that they went through. I'm not gonna pretend like I'm devoid of going through that pattern. If I have to demand that I have to see God, if I have to see the magnificent things in my life, they were looking for a spectacle, which I think is what's interesting because that's what we call these things spectacles, at least in Britain. We call them spectacles because I can see things more. I can be in control of things more. But the problem with demanding or worshiping God through a spectacle is that it will eventually lead to the sensational. I need sensational things in order to feel alive. And then I need sensual things in order to feel alive. So how does God show himself? Well, we know that God shows himself this way. Romans 10, 17 says this, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's how God speaks to us. He hasn't decided to show us the magnificent and the amazing things. He hasn't decided to show us the spectacular. He doesn't want to prove himself through the spectacular. In fact, when Jesus healed people, he healed the leprosy and the lame, etc. Every time he did something amazing, he would say, don't tell anybody. Why? Because he didn't want people to follow him because of the amazing things he could do. God wants us to know him. He wants to know us. That's the most important thing here. So let's look at the second part, the visible and now the movable, the movable. This is where God was put under their control. God under their control now allowed them to move where God was. So I've got God right here. I'll worship God right here. But you know what? I don't know if I like this place. I'm gonna move over here. And I take God with me. But now maybe I'm going through difficulties and troubles over here and I don't want to be in this place because this person is causing me friction. So I'm gonna go over there, but I'll take my worship of God with me over here. So now I move over here. I know I don't actually like this place because I've got too many distractions in life and I can't hear God. So I'll move God over here now. 
No, I don't like this place. I'll move them over here. And what we do is we make God movable. We take our worship with us to somewhere else. God had a way of leading the people. He called it, he had a fire at night and this pillar of smoke during the day. You see, they couldn't tell what the fire, they, should, they couldn't tell the fire what to do. They couldn't tell the smoke what to do. It didn't say that fire and that smoke disappeared. It had already seen it at the top of the mountain. But they had to wait to see how the fire would move. They had to wait to see how the smoke would move. But with a golden calf, they could choose how they were going to move. This is significant for us because oftentimes I've done this myself where I don't feel God in a particular situation or a thing or a ministry that I'm doing or I don't feel it in a relationship that I've got with someone else. There was a time when I didn't even really feel God in this church and I was out of here years ago. I'm ready to go back to Scotland. But because I didn't get permission to move, I didn't move. Not gonna say it didn't go through my mind. I nearly was this close to do it. But I was too scared to move and be in disobedience because I'd done it before. It's easy for me to say, I'll take my service of God and put it somewhere else. Move, making God movable is the thing that will end us to die. It's something that kills our relationship with God. So I looked at this and I said, how then does God show himself? How then does God speak to us? And I looked at, I kept on reading all the way through. And I got to this place in verse 33, it's chapter 33. And it's when Moses, after he had been with the people, he took everything he had done after he dealt with them, he went back up the mountain to spend time with God. And I can only imagine to some degree did he have his tail between his legs because he realized that he had taken God's word and smashed it on the ground because he was so incensed by them. Hey God, I came back, I'm, I'm back and I know I asked you not to do anything to them, but I went ahead and did it myself. So much so that I've actually kept your word from them. I've kept your love. I've kept what I've got you gave to me, I've not given it to them because I was so angry, I smashed it on the ground and I've withheld myself. And to go back to God and say, God, can you give me another set of your revelation? Mark it again once more in my heart. Write and inscribe your love on my heart once again for these people. And this is what happened. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me though, where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will take you and I'll put you in the cleft in a rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is how good God is. There's two things he did with Moses here. The first one was this, he covered him with his hand. And I find that when you're going through storm and you're going through difficulty, 
that God is our Father, that He will cover you with His hand. And sometimes what we can do, I can do, is I can get upset because I can't see things. I don't know what's going on. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what to do here. Should I move there? Should I move there? But God has actually squeezed you into the cleft of a rock. You're between a rock and a hard place. You're in a difficult time, but you're in a difficult place where God has actually taken you outside of the burden of glory or the terror or the horror of holiness that would end up killing you. And He has protect you, protected you in the midst of whatever you're going through. His hand is covering you and you don't get to see everything, but His hand is still covering you. The beautiful thing I find is this, and this is where I really identify, is as soon as God had passed by, as everything had gone on, all the stuff of what happened in the valley is passed, and everything of, the, of being in the presence of God has passed. And now that God has passed, He allowed Moses to see in hindsight what had happened. That's exactly what's happened to me. In every difficulty I've ever gone through in life, I look back and I see where God moved. I see how He spoke. I see how he withheld himself. I see how he broke me and changed me. And the revelation suddenly comes to me because I'm looking at God's back. I'm looking at what he did back in the day when he changed my life and allowed me to go through difficult times. Listen, I want you to have confidence to be still and know that he is God. It's easy to think, who's in charge? Is God in charge? Where are you? But God has always been in charge. He's always been my Lord. He's always covered over me. He's always protected me. I have enough evidence and stories to prove that God is a good God and a holy God. He has had compassion on, who, on, on me at times and He has had disciplined me on, on times. But every time He has been a support and a sustenance for me that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod, which is discipline, and your staff, which is sustenance, that will comfort me. Be confident that you can be still and don't move yourself to a different place in order to get rid of the difficulty you're in because the only thing that matters is being in the presence of your God. Fearful and mighty though that might be, it's the safest place to be. Our Father, we thank you that we can trust you that even though you have delayed, even though that it doesn't seem like we haven't heard your revelation, we haven't heard your word yet, we start making our own solutions up, Father. All I need to do is do this. All I need to do is, is get this thing cleaned up and make this just right and everything will be right hereafter. Instead of every day, Father, allowing ourselves to be dug a little deeper into the cleft of the rock, to be allowed to be stuck between a rock and a hard place, knowing fine well that really your hand is covering us. Father, even though you crush us, yet will we praise you.
We want you to know this, Father. We, we want to trust you. We want to know you. Help us to be still with you. Forgive us, Father, for our golden calves. Forgive us, Father, for coming up with ways to try and worship you when all you wanted was to just be with us, to protect us. We're telling you once again, Father, we trust you. Lead us beside still waters and restore our souls. May God bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. He's your father and he'll lead you in the right way. He will take you in the right place, but you've got to listen because that's the only way you draw close to God. May God bless you. Have a great day.